So today, I know it's going to get cold, and you know me, I do an 18, 20-page sermon every week, and it's going to get a little bit cold, so I'll try to speak quickly. I don't want to speak too quickly because it's on a tasty subject, but let me read one more psalm real quickly. Actually, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, good chapter to read for this particular sermon, so I'm going to go ahead and read that, and uh, uh, then we'll get into, uh, you know, some disappointing news that happened 4,000 years ago, but uh, Jesus is here to make all things right, so... Here we go, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that which he labors? For I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it. God does it, that men should fear him. That which has been has already been, and what has been already and God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of man also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which go upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? The word of the Lord. All right, today I have, as I said, something a little bit tasty and delicious for you. This is called Introducing Donuts, the End of the Garden of God. Honey, donuts, absolutely. (laughs) Honey is mentioned 60 times in the Bible, and it is used as the Bible's prime example of sweetness for comparison to other things. For example, in the book of Proverbs, we are warned about the sweetness of a seductress. It says, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Thank goodness I have the wife I have. And in the Song of Songs, we read King Solomon's words where he makes a similar comparison about the beauty of the voice of an upright woman who is his beloved. He says, your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. 
honey comes from the work of bees. You all know that I have a beehive in the back of my house and they put out a lot of honey. Comes from the work of bees and bees come from the mind of God. The splendor and the majesty of one single bumblebee far outweighs any possibility of evolution. And the work they do fills our lips with delight and our stomachs with joy. I wanna give you a couple of the amazing benefits of honey before I go on. Honey has natural energy boosters because it is a great natural source of carbohydrates which provide strength and energy to the body. It's known for its effectiveness in instantly boosting performance, endurance, and also reducing muscle fatigue. And the reason why is because honey has glucose, which is an immediate energy booster, but it also has fructose, which is absorbed more slowly and it provides sustained energy for long endurance runs, for example. Honey is also an immunity system builder. If you know, we have a lot of local spores and pollen. Some people come down from up north and they're uh, uh, allergic to them. And what you can do by taking the honey is they gather the pollen from all of these different things around here and they make the honey out of that. So it's actually like a natural inoculant. If you take a teaspoon of local honey, wherever you live, every day for several months, you will become immune to any of the pollens that make you sneeze. So that's a wonderful benefit of it. It also has antioxidants. It has antibacterial properties, which can help you improve your digestive system and uh, stay fit and healthy. It prevents disease. And uh, it is also good with um, cuts and burns and sore throats. It helps out with sleeplessness. If you can't sleep, you know me, I don't sleep very well at all. I'm always 8.15 in bed and I'm just tossing and turning all night. But it helps with all of these kind of things. In contrast to honey though, there is the donut. Honey comes from the mind of God, as I said, through his agents of pollination, which are the bees. But on the other hand, donuts are a product of man's devising and man's ingenuity. Where honey is abundantly beneficial to us, donuts are obviously a little bit less so. But their sweet deliciosity cannot be denied. And their totally tempting, titillating tastiness tries and tests our taste buds at the expense of our overall slim and trim appearance. So what do donuts have to do with the Genesis account that we are going to look at today? Very little unless you speak Hebrew. If you understand Hebrew, there may be a moral to the story in the lesson of the donut. I wanna give you the uh, ingredients to a donut just because it's kind of fun to think of how easy they are to make. Three quarters cup of scalded milk, one third cup granulated sugar, one quarter teaspoon salt, one envelope of uh, active dry yeast, one quarter cup of warm water, four cups of sifted all purpose flour, one teaspoon of freshly, freshly granulated nutmeg, which is optional, one-third cup of butter, two eggs beaten, oil for deep frying, two cups of confectioner sugar, and six tablespoons of milk, and all that, and you come up with donuts. Here's our text verse for today. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. May God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is donuts, woman's second desire. Donuts are pretty tempting. I can tell you personally that I could make a breakfast out of donuts every single day. And ladies are not exempt from the 
delightful desire of their yumminess. But there is something else that the Bible says women have, which is a desire prior to donuts. In the sentencing of the woman after the curse of the serpent, we read these words. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are several parts to the sentencing of the woman here, and they're given in the form of couplets, two thought verses, in other words. The first two applied to her mothering role, and the second two apply or are concerning her role as a wife to the husband. What we see here is that just as in the curse of the serpent that we looked at last week, the woman will be the bearer of offspring and that offspring are sure to come. The woman, having been present at the curse of the serpent, was certainly excited about the prospect of having this seed also because she had heard in the curse of the serpent that her seed would crush his head. And certainly with what was going on with them at that moment, she was in anticipation of this coming about. And she was probably expecting it right away. And this is not speculation because as we'll see in chapter four, the naming of her first two sons verifies how eagerly she anticipated the coming of her seed to crush the serpent's head. Until then though, she was sentenced to the multiplication of sorrows in and through conception and all the way through the birthing process. Unfortunately, the woman finds out that the curse of the serpent, her seed crushing his head, and the promise of that seed coming will come at a cost to her. It's been noted, and this is actually real, that women suffer more in the birthing process than any other creatures of the earth. And this is certainly a result of the curse that is pronounced here. There is no other medical known reason for that, why women suffer more than all the other animals. During and after having a baby, women have mental troubles, they have sorrows, they have pain, they have nausea. There's a couple ladies here that haven't had children yet and I'm sure they're loving this. Um, they have pains, they have fainting spells, it goes on and on. And of course there is the constant worry that they have about maybe having a miscarriage or the health of the baby when he arrives. And will she be able to handle things when this child comes? And all of these things are causing stress in her that other animals don't face. And all of this leads right up until the time the baby is born with the birth pangs growing in frequency and in strength. And of course, after this, there is a short, there's this very short time when all of that is forgotten by the words of Jesus himself. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. After the joy of this moment though, reality does come back and the trials of conception and of birth are replaced with both joys and the trials of raising a child. In addition to these trials, pains and numbers of conceptions, the woman's sentence includes that her desire will be for her husband and that he would rule over her. If you've ever read any commentaries on this, you'll know that they go all over the place speculating what's being talked about. Some say it's a sexual desire for her husband and others deny this completely. But because the sentence is in the form of these couplets, the answer is given right in the text itself if you just simply read it as a couplet. Since the fall of man in almost all less developed cultures, women have been more or less a slave to the husband. The rule of selfishness is what prevails there and the weaker inevitably serves the stronger. 
Going as far as slavery, though, is wholly unintended by the Creator, and it is cultures that do this who divert from his overall intention for the relationship between the man and the woman. On the other hand, equality in marriage is also unintended by God. Cultures which follow this particular pattern of saying everything is going to be equal are those who reject marriage completely in order to avoid the rule of men are also divergent from what God intends for the man and the woman. Instead, the rule of the man over the woman is to be as one who is responsible for the woman and for the family. The woman is to defer to her husband's decisions when they conflict with her own desires. In the New Testament, we see the proper order of this particular type of relationship mentioned many times by the apostles, and I'll just give you one from Paul. He says in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. We're commanded to love our wives. The woman is never commanded to love her husband in the Bible, just so you know that. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So you are, as a husband, under the obligation to be willing to give your life for the wife of your youth, okay? Keep that in mind, guys. Living as a husband and a wife within the Christian context, then, should restore each to their proper place and bring them in line with God's intention for the husband and wife. And I say should because we know that we don't always, as Christians, treat our wives the way we should. And women are not always submissive in the manner that the Bible asks. But that is the intention. And it leads right into our second thought today, which is if you want donuts, you'll have to work for them. As we noted earlier, honey is a gift to man. It is not of works. Donuts, on the other hand, require work. We have to get the ingredients. We have to mix the stuff up. We have to do this and we have to do that. We have to bake the dough, for example. All of these different things. In the same way, man would go from honey to donuts, from resting in the garden to tilling the soil. The end of the garden of God had come for the man. Here's the sentencing of the man from the book of Genesis chapter 3. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. After cursing the serpent, he sentences the woman. And then after that, the Lord God turns his attention to the man. He pronounces the judgment upon him. Yes, the end of the garden of God had come. Instead of supply and an abundance to fill their every need and to provide them with endless delight, there would be something different. In the woman's sentencing, there was the multiplication of conception, but that is actually considered a blessing for the man and for the family. In the 127th Psalm, we read these words. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. More children as a part of the sentence is a part of the grace and the mercy given by God at the same time. The earth would be less giving, 
and it would be more unforgiving. And so feeding children would be an added burden. But at the same time, if he could sustain those children until they were old enough, they would be able to help the man in his fighting against the soil, and they would also be able to take care of him when he was older. And that is the biblical standard, just so you all know, if you have aging parents or people in your family that need help, it says that if you don't take care of your own family, you are worse than a pagan. So that's an obligation on us. And soil, believe it or not, is not only the key thought of man's sentencing, but it is also one of the key thoughts throughout the entire Bible. If you follow the Bible properly, you will see that soil is mentioned in certain contexts all the way through, just as water is mentioned all the way from the first chapters all the way out to the very last page of the Bible. Agriculture always has a theme. In this particular context, soil is a very important concept of what God is showing us spiritually with a physical application, the soil. The ground is cursed and it will no longer bear fruit from heaven. Instead, it will bear fruit from the serpent's throne, which is the ground, the spot where he breathes out his commands. And his throne, as we know, is a very hard rule. Med would have to toil the soil back then, and he still does to this day, to get food to come up from it. And when he said, all the days of your life, it implies that it will always be this way for fallen man. Not just during the life of Adam, but all the days of man. Water, instead of coming up from the ground as a mist in the Garden of Eden, flows from aquifers, it goes to rivers, and it needs to be channeled, it needs to be carried, it needs to be pumped wherever it's going to be used. And not only would the soil bring forth fruit reluctantly, but in contrast, it would bring forth thorns and thistles very willingly. If you don't actively take care of your your lawn or your garden, the first thing that happens is up come weeds. And of course, when the weeds come up, they steal the water from the weaker plants and from the grass and whatever you've been trying to maintain. And once that happens, then thorns and thistles pop right up because they can handle the more arid conditions. The Bible, as we spoke about before, speaks of the blessings of a harvest resulting in say 30 or 60 or 100 fold of edible crops like wheat. But this type of productivity, it takes work and it takes care. On the other hand, there is a species of thistle known as the Acanthum vulgare, which produces more than the hundred heads that we have to work for without any help at all. And each head contains from three to 400 seeds in it without any tending or care by man. Now, supposing they produce a medium of 80 heads, all right, and that each head contains only 300 seeds, the first crop would be 24,000 new thistles. When these are sown, it could potentially be 576 million. A third time would result in almost 14 billion thistles. You have one more harvest at this rate and you would have 332 quadrillion thistles. And if you repeated that one more time, there would be enough thistles to sow every inch of every planet in our solar system. So you can see how easy the curses upon man and the woman affect our labors. The curse even resulted in these, the sand spurs, which fill up the shorelines all over America. And you know, before this sermon, I went looking for some sand spurs with some heads on it, because I've stepped on sand spurs every single week since we started this. This is the first week we don't have any because it's not the season for sand spurs. But anyway, I wanted to let you know that. And why? Even the sandiest soil on earth where water just drains right through it, it can't absorb any water at all, will support 
thorns and thistles. And in verse 18, which we are evaluating, it says, you shall eat the herb of the field. This is a commentary that when the crops fail and the trees don't have any fruit on them, we will look for food even as the animals do from the herbs of the field. This is the state of fallen man because of the effects of one sin, one sin committed in ignorance. Imagine how much God dislikes when we sin willfully and with our thoughts and knowledge of what we're about to do. In his final act of sentencing the man, the Lord says this, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In the sweat of your face, or more directly, the sweat of your nose, the Hebrew, Hebrew word is bezeet apecha, and it indicates the conditions of the labor for the laborer. Our heads sweat a lot when we're out working, and as we work in the field or when we're doing our other jobs, what direction is our head normally pointed? It's pointed down. And because of this, we have all the sweat on our head. It runs around our head. It gets onto our face. It runs down our face and onto our nose and right into the place where we are working. In other words, we are symbolically watering the very ground that we are cultivating. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. This is what he's trying to tell us. We are reaping the results of one sin committed in ignorance. And finally, in verse 19, we came to these sad words, which we read just a second ago. They reveal the loss of the access to the tree of life. It says, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust, and it's what we consist of. When the spark of life, which animates our body, goes away, entropy takes over, and we inevitably return into the dust that the Lord God brought us out of. And before we leave the sentencing of the man and the woman, we need to step back and we need to take a look at these in a much, much higher light. A deliverer was promised in the curse of the serpent, one who would crush the serpent's head. This same deliverer is referred to throughout their sentencing as well. I'm going to take all of their sentencing and I'm going to read it one line at a time and listen to what it prefigures. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Jesus, in the book of Isaiah 52 and 53, was known as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering and the one whose soul was in labor. All of this was about brought about simply to bring forth children for God. It, the curse continues. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Jesus, we know. He suffered at the cross of Calvary to bring many sons to glory. In pain, he brought forth God's children. The sentencing continues. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The desire of the bride of Christ, all through the New Testament we see it, is for her husband, Jesus. The last prayer in the entire Bible is even so. Come, Lord Jesus, it is our desire. And Jesus is the one to rule over his bride, the church whom he purchased with his own blood. The sentencing continues. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In Isaiah, Jesus is said to be a root out of dry ground. And later in Galatians, it says that he became a curse for us, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sentencing continues, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Again in Isaiah it says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus labored throughout his life 
in the harvest field of human souls. The sentence goes on, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Christ was given what? At the cross, he was given a crown of thorns. The very sentencing of the man for his disobedience became the crown of the Lord who sentenced him and who created him. It sentencing continues. And you shall eat the herb of the field. The instructions for the Passover, which Sergio is certainly very well aware of, say this, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, meaning the, the Passover lamb roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Jesus not only participated every year of his life in the Passover, but he prefigured it, leading a life of complete bitterness to redeem fallen man. The sentence continues. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does it say in Luke? Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground, thus earning his bread, that being the bread of affliction, in order to redeem fallen man. The sentence continues. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The mortal part of the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, and he was interred for the sins committed by his own creation. Death came in, and as a result of sin, and it was dealt with by his obedient life. The very sentence of the man and his woman for the rebellion carried out was carried out in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord God did not cause man, any of us, to receive anything that he himself was not willing to endure himself. Thus, he is both the just and he is the justifier of everyone who calls on his name. There is one exception, though, between the curse between Adam and Jesus, where it says, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Jesus, because he prevailed over the devil, was resurrected by the power of God. We all know that. The curse has been removed, and now anyone who calls on him will likewise be freed from the finality of death. We continue on with verse 20. It says, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve here, which is translated in English, I think is a, a really unfortunate translation because you lose all relevance to what the name means. Her name Chava means life. For in her life, we see how Adam named her. The, it confirms what God told her in her sentencing, this, uh, this naming of her by life. When the Lord God said, he shall rule over you. If you understand what I'm trying to say to you, I'm not doing it very well, but he named her and therefore he rules over her or has dominion over her. If you remember when Adam named the animals, he said, you are given dominion over all the creatures and then he was allowed to name them. We talked about how when Nebuchadnezzar uh, renamed the exiled Israelites when they came up to Babylon. The naming of a person shows dominion over that person, and Adam was allowed to do that to the woman, thus fulfilling the very sentence that she had received just a second earlier. By choosing the name Chabal, or life, he is demonstrating faith, believe it or not, in God's promise of a coming Redeemer. He knew that the Redeemer would come, and that he would restore to them the spiritual life that they had just lost. But he had no idea at all that it would be 4,000 years before this Redeemer would come. All he knew at that moment was that one was coming who would restore this dead condition. And it can be even inferred, as I said earlier, 
that they were anticipating the first person born in human history to be that redeemer because of how he named her life, thinking she is going to bring us back to life. Even though they had come to the end of the Garden of God, they had a hope of a better day, and they exhibited faith in that better day by the promise of the Lord that he had made to them just moments earlier. And that brings us to our third thought today, which is covered in something sweet. Donuts aren't just delicious bread products. We all know that. They're often filled with all kinds of yummy stuff, all kinds of jams and, you know, yogurt or whatever. And what is even more common on a donut than what is inside of them is what they are covered in. There's all kinds of sweetness and delight which cover a donut. And I'd like to give you a couple things to think about concerning the donut. Donuts do not make themselves, and they do not get themselves out of hot oil. Donuts don't cover themselves in delightfully delicious goodness. Instead, somebody else does it. And donuts have to meet the end of their donut nests if they are to be enjoyed. Charlie, what are you talking about? <laughs> Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Only after he named his wife Chava, or life, does God clothe the two of them. The symbolism in this particular verse follows all the way through the entire Bible. If you were in my Bible class this morning, you've already heard this, but it goes all the way even to the last book of the Bible. What would be the reason for waiting until after Adam has named his wife to clothe them? Well, let's look at the significance of the verse and then why he clothed them after this in a moment. There are three things that are involved in the clothing of Adam and Eve, and they all point to the work of the coming Redeemer. First, God initiated the action. If you remember, Adam and the woman made fig leaves to cover themselves, but God rejected this. They had chosen the material, they chose the fashion, they chose everything else and involved with it. Despite this, they were still ashamed and they still hid themselves when the Lord came. The covering could not conceal their deeds. In the same way, all false religions, all false religions on earth, choose the mode of salvation and they initiate the actions which are expected to please God and to bring about restoration with him. They are man-centered, working back to God. But God has, he does, and he always will reject this avenue. Of reconciliation. Instead, God alone chooses the course of action and he initiates it. He decides the covering and everything else that is associated with it. Secondly, we come up to something had to die. An innocent animal, probably a lamb or a ram. God did not kill Adam and the woman who deserved death for disobeying, but rather he chose an innocent animal in their place. In essence, he transferred their guilt to the animal, and the animal suffered for their misdeeds. This is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement means at one meant, to bring back to restoration, and it comes from the Hebrew word, which means to cover. So this is what's going on here, substitutionary atonement. And it symbolizes God's choice of the only sacrifice which is truly acceptable to him which is the death of Jesus Christ, who is, as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Later in the Bible, we see in the book of Hebrews that an animal cannot take away sins. It only temporarily covers the sins until the final sacrifice was made, which is the Lord Jesus, who died in the place of fallen man. And the third thing about this verse is that God completed the action. He personally clothed them. It was his gift, and it was unmerited. His animal died, his hands prepared the covering, and he clothed them. In the book of Revelation, we read this. It says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Later, we see that these white garments stand for the righteousness of the saints. It is not the righteous acts of the saints. It is the righteousness of the saints, meaning an imputed righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to them, and it is based on his work, not on our work. The entire mode of salvation in the Bible for restoration of fallen man to God is summed up in this one verse. And also for Adam and the wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. You will find no addition to that throughout the Bible. It will always follow that pattern. And this is the same pattern that he uses again and again and again throughout the Bible. When the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, they didn't tell them, okay, it's time for you guys to get yourself out of the mess. Instead, he led them out. And when they got out of Egypt, he guided them all the way in the flight down to the Red Sea. And when they were facing destruction at the Red Sea, you've got the Red Sea here, you're at Pihahiroth, where you've got a mouth of gorges on both sides, and you've got an Egyptian army behind them, 603,550 men. You've got women, you've got children, you've got goats, you've got all kinds of things you're carrying with you. They are hemmed in, they're facing destruction. He didn't say to them, handle it yourself. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And now we come to the question, why is it that he clothed them only after he named his wife Chava, or life? It's because this name, as I said, was a demonstration of faith. They lost access to the garden when they lacked faith. And it was only by faith that they could ever hope to be restored to it. And so after demonstrating this faith, God provided them with the clothing. In the same way, Jesus Christ gives us his robes of righteousness only after we demonstrate faith in him. He doesn't come and save us if we don't want to be saved. We have to actively call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation notes that the salvation of the human soul is based on faith and it is based on faith alone. When God speaks, he expects us to accept that at face value. And only after we demonstrate that faith of calling on the name of Jesus are we covered with his righteousness. And this righteousness, I can assure you, is so very much sweeter than the glazing of a donut. It is perfect, it is white, it is purer than anything we can yet imagine. And that brings us to our fourth thought today, which is something better than donuts is on the other side. You wonder why I've been bringing up the word donut all this time? Sergio and Rhoda, I'm sure, know this. The Hebrew word for donut is sufkanya, and it is a combination of three other Hebrew words. Suf is the word end, gan is the word garden, and yah is short for Jehovah, the end of the garden of God. So maybe it's because these are so tasty and so delicious that someone thought, well, we lost paradise, but donuts are the next best thing. 
Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. This man is now like the triune God. He now knows good and he now knows evil. Not only is he responsible for his actions, but he knows the difference between those actions and he bears a greater responsibility because of that knowledge. But there could even be a touch of sarcasm in this particular verse. It says that the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Here they are, they're standing here in these rough garments that the Lord had clothed them in and the creator asks us to reflect on what happened here. He says, look at what knowledge has gotten them. Let's hope that they obey in the future and make right choices and be obedient to the call of the master. Got another verse here. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he would take him. God knew that they were in a fallen state. And if they lived forever with clothing that only symbolically covered their shame, they would become infinitely bent on wickedness. And so in a demonstration of both mercy and of grace, he took away their access to eternal life. The Lord God drove them out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. The purpose of being in the garden, as you all know, wasn't to tend and keep it, but it was to worship and to serve the creator. And now they would have to tend the ground in order to survive. Worshiping and serving the creator would now be a voluntary task and it would be based on faith, not on sight. The life of every faithful person since then, even to this day, is centered on worshiping and serving the creator. But our deeds are not done to justify us. They are deeds of faith in an unseen God and they are based on promises which lie ahead of us in a world which mocks us and ridicules us for our hope. And if you don't believe that, go ask Tim Tebow and see what he's gone through in the past several months. We are mocked and ridiculed for our faith, but it is a valid faith and we have a sure hope in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man at this time was driven from the presence of God and from the beauty of the garden. A heavenly guard was placed outside east of the garden to keep him out so that he could not gain access to the tree of life. But a guard implies that access is possible. The very fact that this verse is here proves that a return to Eden was not only available, but it was also expected. The rest of the Bible from this verse that I just read, from this verse on, all the way through, it details the long adventure that we are facing of restoring that which was lost. And it always details the work of the person of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle in the wilderness, for example, foreshadows access to Eden. The most holy place where God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant was separated from the outside. This is the most holy place. You got the holy place and you got the rest of the tabernacle. It was this veil hung in front of the most holy place. And many of you know that there were cherubim sewn on that veil. And that veil was pointing towards the east, symbolically representing the Garden of Eden, where this cherubim is guarding access. Later, the temple in Jerusalem also faced west with the veil facing east, with cherubim sewn on it. And on a spring morning in the year AD 32, a man died on a cross 
within sight of that temple. Unlike Adam, who died in his own sin, this man had never sinned. Being sinless, he was destined to live forever. But he gave up his life voluntarily to replace the misdeeds of Adam and to restore what Adam lost. This is the work of the Lord. The moment he died, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom in two. It was a handbreadth thick. If you read the Jewish commentaries on the veil of the temple, it was a handbreadth thick. No human being could have reached it. And as you know, it was about 40 feet high. No man could have rent this. It was rent by a God saying that access is now restored to the tree of life through my son. His wrath at the sins of Adam and Adam's seed was totally satisfied by the death of his own son, thus fulfilling every type and every picture that is prefigured in the holy and in the sacred writings, which we call the Bible. Access past those cherubim was restored and access to the tree of life is made available to all who by faith alone are willing to receive the work of Jesus Christ and to bow in submission to him simply calling on his name. Donuts may be the end of the garden of God, but they require work and they go bad if they are not eaten quickly. But God, he saw our attempt at a tasty and sweet existence and he said, I can do so much better than that. You have come to the end of the garden of God, but I myself will bring you back. Listen to the words of Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord for my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Fill me with you, Lord. I can fill myself with donuts. Your sentence is pronounced. In pain you shall give birth. Your husband will rule over you, and he shall till the unforgiving earth. Your pains in childbirth will be increased. Indeed, your labor will be most severe. But when from your womb the child is released, again the joy in your heart will appear. And Adam, because you listened to your wife and from the forbidden fruit you did eat, I shall give you a burdensome life. I've cursed the ground beneath your feet. For your crops you will toil, and the soil will resist from it thorns and thistles will readily grow but the things on which you need to subsist will take careful work with a plow and a hoe someday you'll return to that ground as a seed planted in the soil and if by faith you live your life there shall be a reward for your time of toil now I will clothe you in garments of skin and send you out of this garden of delight cherubs will faithfully guard the way back in until my son makes all things right and when he does you can come back in not because of anything you have done but because of his blood it will cover every sin such is the wondrous work of my son hallelujah amen heavenly father we thank you for the gift of jesus christ our lord what he did for us we thank you for every good blessing found in jesus christ and i pray that if somebody here has not accepted the lord as his own personal savior that you would touch their heart and let them know how much he desperately loves us each and every one of us and how he came and fulfilled every sentence of the man he didn't rise above it and say i don't need to do this he lived it himself and he did it 
so that we could be restored to you, O oh God. And we thank you for that gift. We love you. We praise you in the glorious and the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I hope everybody will stay for a few minutes and have communion with us. We're going to listen to a song while my wife gets the communion ready. so hugely good to us. He is so wonderfully good to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam ha'motzi lechem min ha'aretz. And he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All of those things that we read about today, all prefigured in the work of Jesus Christ. He ate the bread of affliction so that we can eat the bread of his precious life. In the same manner, he also took the cup and he gave thanks. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam borei peri hagapen. For as often, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
as always, I want to remind you to please read your Bible, study your Bible, know your Bible, so that you are prepared when somebody asks you about Him. It's the most important thing that any of us can face. Without Him, our life is just life under the sun, drudgery and toiling the soil. But with Him, we can worship and serve our Creator, even in a life of trials and pains and troubles. Poor Paul is facing his distress right now. We have our good brother over here who's facing trouble right now, and both of them have wonderful wives who are certainly concerned. And it's just, it's a greater hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and dismiss you all today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>